If you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 16. I am going to uh, read the second half of Genesis 35 and all of Genesis 36. That's a lot of very difficult names. So, uh, but part of the purpose of this sermon is to help you understand that God has a purpose for chapters like Genesis 36. So if you would, follow along with me. Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, that's Bethlehem, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went away and lay, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Very important there, Esau is even put before Jacob. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. It's a very important part of this text. So, For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourneys could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. 
Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jaush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kanaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Jaush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of, born of Aholabamah, the daughter of Ana, Esau's wife's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. A little bit of change here in verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite. The inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, and the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hamam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shabal, Alvin, Manahoth, Ebal, Shepho, Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna. These he is the honor who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion's father, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Oholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdon, Eshbon, Ithron, and Charon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavon, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uts, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. Another shift. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bela died, and Jabab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jabab died, and Husham, of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of the, his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla and Masrakah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, and the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, in the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mahetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mahazahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jeheth, Aholabama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Okay, so we need to give Tiffany a raise today, or at least a bonus. 
Why did God include this passage of scripture? How is it profitable to you? Well, a question I want to ask, leading to the answer to that question, is how well do you think you know the love of God towards you? Nothing, and I'm not exaggerating, nothing, absolutely nothing, is more vital to your relationship with God than knowing correctly his love for you. At the very core of the members of the Trinity is love. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. But it is not enough to contemplate the truth of God's character of love. You must study God's love for you. If, in fact, if I were limited, if I could only teach on one subject... It would be the love of God towards those who are in Christ Jesus. That would be the subject. You know the song, Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Now where would you go to learn of God's love for you? You know, if you're, I want to learn about God's love for me, where would I go? Well, I hope you'll go to the cross. That's the number one place. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. But the scripture also presents to his people God's love by way of a contrast. It may not be clear to you yet, Hopefully it will be by the end of this sermon. But one of the greatest hindrances to your rightly knowing the love of God for you is the false belief that God loves all people equally. Love is more than a feeling. Love is a feeling. It is a feeling. That moves God to action. And the action with which God is moved to perform is your redemption. I'm going to repeat this, this line twice. If the nature of God's love for those who will spend eternity in hell is no different then the nature of God's love for those who will experience eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth, then it is of no true value to be loved by God. Did you hear that? If the nature of God's love for those who will spend eternity in hell is no different than the nature of God's love for those who will experience eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth, then it is of no true value to be loved by God. Now, it is true that God loves all people in some sense. All men are created in his image. We are told in the Bible that he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And he certainly commands his people to share the gospel to every person that we find. 
And that is a definition, that's a loving thing to do. Even though he knows that many of them will reject Christ and still spend eternity in hell. But God's love towards those who are redeemed is infinitely greater than the love that he has for those that he has not acted to redeem. And God wants those who are being redeemed to know how much he loves them by comparing them with others who are not being redeemed. You see, God's love for you is infinitely greater than for those who are not his people. And if that were not the case, then it would be of no benefit to be his people. You think about that. In last week's sermon, we talked about idols, but the essence of that that passage is God saying, I am your God, Jacob, and I'm not just God to you, Jacob, personally, but I am God to Israel. So he changed his name to Israel. And you are my people. He's establishing with him a special relationship. Similar to what I just said with David when he said, Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem. Everything in chapter 37 is beginning to set up a comparison between God, the Israel, who has God as their God, and Edom, who doesn't. Now, I want to make another kind of side trail caveat. It's important for us who are in the church to recognize that if you have a right to claim, I am God's child, okay, you should recognize that there was a time when you were not God's child. Okay? And that's one of the reasons why God talks about election. He talks about love being loved from the foundation of the world. Because he needs to communicate to you that he loved you before you actually became his. And that should temper us to not just get in our little holy huddle and think, oh, he loves us and he hates the world. We should constantly be thinking, there may be people out there that he wants, is going to save, and he wants us to take the gospel to them so that he can bring them into the fold. So don't just think, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, if you're elect or not elect. No, we're constantly going, until somebody breathes their last breath, we are asking God to pour out his redeeming love on them and bring them into the fold. So that's, just keep that in mind. It's one of the reasons why we don't just make a final judgment on any unbeliever. I don't care how bad their sin is, we still pray that God would reach down into their hearts and save them. Um, so just keep that in mind. But that being said, you who bear the name of Jesus Christ, God wants you to know that he has loved you infinitely greater than those who are not being saved. And I believe God establishes this through Esau. Esau was born into the covenant. He bore in his flesh the same sign of God's covenant love as Jacob. But Esau is in the process of leaving God's blessing. He's walking away from it. Esau is an example of an apostate. Someone who was in the covenant but who later rejects the covenant promises. 
And so then the question becomes, if Esau really is an apostate, why do we care about his descendants? Why do we even care? It is in comparison with Esau's descendants, the Edomites, that God will contrast the greatness of his covenant love for Israel. Now, I don't have time to go through all of this, but if you just start doing a a word search of Edom and Edomites, you will see that the Edomites are there in the history of Israel throughout. This Old Testament period lasts more than a thousand years. And obviously, the whole Old Testament is given to God's interaction with Israel. Only do the Edomites come in little by little, you know, just little connections. But they're there all the time. And I want you to turn over to the book of Malachi, the Italian prophet Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. God is trying to impress upon his people how much he loves them. And like us today, we're continually doubting whether God loves us. Listen to the interaction. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you. And then God, he actually gives the other side of the the conversation. So he's given both sides, but he's actually given them. And he says, but you say, you Israelites, how have you loved us? And then, declares the Lord, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. He sets up this contrast. Okay, he wants to communicate this. Now, here's here's the, the essence of the difference. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. By the way, he actually did that with Israel too when they went in exile. But listen to this statement. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry, not for a short season, but forever. One way to define God's love for his people is that it is enduring. It never ends. God may become angry with his people in their rebellion, But he uses language like this. I was angry with you for a moment. But my steadfast love abides with you forever. But not so for those who have walked away from the covenant. Who have left the covenant. God says, you may try to get back up. I'm going to take you down again and again and again. And you will never rise up. That's a pretty stark contrast. If you are sitting here today, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has put away his righteous anger towards you and is acting towards you in redeeming love. 
When Paul speaks of his great statement of God's love in Romans 8, he says a couple things at the beginning. He says, therefore there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the end of that chapter, he says things like, who can separate us from the love of Christ? When he's in that discussion, where does he go to try to explain how deeply the Christians have been loved in Christ? Right back to Malachi. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. You see, it is through God's dealings with Israel that we begin to see the nature and the beauty of what it means to be loved by God. Of course, all of that is culminated in Christ. We'll talk about that in more in a moment. But the very beginning of the contrast between God, how God treats Israel and how God treats Edom is found right here in Genesis. In fact, God raises up Esau and his descendants to be a foil for his beloved people. Let's start looking at the text. Genesis 35, 11, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come, for you, come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. That's Genesis 35, 11 and 11. See, God says, I promise to you, you'll be a great nation. Kings will come from you. Uh, great company of nations. All these kind of things he's promising to Israel. When we get to chapter, verse 16... Rather than blessing and greatness and, you know, fun and joy, we see Jacob still experiencing suffering. It'd be easy to think, oh, if you love me so much, why are you giving me this suffering? So in verses 16 to 20, we see two things happening. Jacob is on the move. He's traveling in a southerly direction. Otherwise, there must be some kind of emergency because otherwise, why would he be traveling when his wife is... So close to delivery. Probably heard word that his dad was ill and he needed to go. There's two things that happen. Rachel bears a son and then she dies. And both of those are important to this how God treats his people. On a personal level, we see God uh, working in Rachel's heart because she was motivated by envy. We know that the whole, whole reason why she wanted children is she wanted to have more uh, love from Jacob, and she's motivated by this. And she actually says in Genesis 30, give me children or I die. How ironic that she dies in childbirth. But rather than condemning Rachel, rather than taking her out, God actually brings blessing through her. Okay? Her envy does not prevent God from blessing her with a son. And it's actually an answer to her prayer. In Genesis 30, 24, when she had birthed Joseph, she actually said, May the Lord add to me another son. Oh, how wonderful that God answers the prayers of his sinful people. Right? Isn't that amazing? He loves you in that way. Now, Rachel is encouraged by the fact that she's going to have a son. And now, you and I might think about the 12th son. I know they're not all born to Rachel, 12. But you, you, the, the thought of having 12 children might be daunting to you. 
It might even be a nightmare to you. But from the perspective of the Bible, 12 is perfect. Now, I'm not exactly sure why God thinks 12 is perfect. Might be the 12 months of the year. I don't know. The Bible never tells us exactly why 12 is perfect. But it is 12. It is not a matter of more the merrier. 11 is too few. 13 is too many. 12 is just right. That's what they were to be thinking. So here we go. We got Rachel in, in mourning and hurting and pain and dying. And yet God works through her to give her the final place of the completion of Israel. Jacob's 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus will choose 12 apostles. And even when Judas is lost, they've got to replace him with another because you've got to have 12. Picture a pie cut into 12 pieces. If you remove a piece, you don't have the full pie. Try to add another piece to it, it doesn't work. Right? Rachel is full of sorrow because she knows she is dying and will not see her son grow up. But Rachel is blessed to bear a son who becomes the symbol of the fullness of God's promised blessing. If you don't see this connection to 12, you will not get what's going on in Genesis 36. Verses 21 through 26, all the sons are named, kind of laid out according to, to mothers, and that really shows the, the rivalry between them. So again, we see this, this idea that there's problem brewing and when we get to the story of Joseph, you're going to see that envy continuing to occur, occur and, and cause great problems with Joseph. But then in, verses, in these verses, you also see Reuben lying with Bilhah. What's the point of that? I think the story makes absolutely clear. That God's love for his people is not founded in their being better than other nations. If you're sitting here today and you know your sin and you think, God, you should have just let me rot in hell, you're in good company. Reuben is not necessarily motivated by lust, he's motivated by power. He wants to, to, to establish and ensure his place among God's people. Rachel has died, and so he wants to kind of corrupt her servant, Bilhah, and supplant Leah, who could supplant uh, Leah as the chief wife. So here's the issue. There is problem going on among the covenant family. And we've seen this before. If God is going to actually bring about blessing, he's going to have to deal with the sin of his own people. That's the real problem. But you have to see in this passage that God does not treat his people with immediate justice. What happened in chapter 34 when some... Hagen corrupts Dinah. Simeon and Levi are so indignant that they wipe out an entire village. Now Reuben violates his father's concubine, and we hear nothing from any of the kids. 
not to laud Jacob in this, but at least he's consistent. He didn't do anything at that time. He doesn't do anything here. But the other guys are just so inconsistent. They are so hypocritical in this. And I use that term very lightly because I don't like, I, I think we overuse hypocrisy. But I think they're being hypocritical here because they have two standards. Dan, surely Dan and Naphtali should rise up because it's their mom that just got violated. Surely there should be capital punishment. Deuteronomy 27.20 20 says that cursed is anyone who lies with his father's wife. But herein lies the tension of Scripture. Reuben is in the covenant relationship with God. If God kills Reuben right now, then the fullness of Israel will be lost. We go from 12 to 11. But if God does not judge Reuben immediately, where is righteousness? Do you see that tension? Whenever God acts in mercy towards his people, he is violating justice. Whenever God keeps his promise to bless Abraham, he is violating the covenant of works established with Adam in the garden. If you sin, you deserve to die. And every time God chooses to not kill, then he is opening himself up to being unjust. And you know when God silences those cries? When Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished. Because only in the cross does Jesus bear the penalty of Reuben's sin. And yours. So God doesn't punish Reuben right now, but he doesn't ignore it either. And Reuben's actions come back to bite him. Instead of establishing his position, his actions actually rob him of his position. Because before Jacob dies, he will pronounce this over Reuben. This is in Genesis 49. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So basically what we're seeing here is God and Jacob do not ignore Reuben's sin, but neither is he cut off from the covenant immediately. This can only be because Reuben's sin will be covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to understand, if you want to under, know God's love for you, you must understand that it is given to you only because Jesus bears the sins that you should be crushed for. He will transform his people. He will change you. He will, over time, work to get evil out of your heart. It will not be all at once. It will not be complete in this life. And his redeeming love is doing that. But... Your goodness, your lack of evil is not the cause of his love for you. In the final verses, Jacob arrives to see his father before he dies. There's not much said about this. That's not really the point. The point is that Jacob and Esau are together at his dad's funeral. You see that. Esau and Jacob, they're both there. You're almost surprised to see it. If Esau 
at this moment was humble enough to seek the eternal blessing by being near to Jacob, he would be here in the covenant. Instead, he leaves Jacob. I'll explain more about this in a minute. Genesis 36, 1 through 14. I'm not going to read this again, don't worry. Um, these are the generations of Esau. Verse 1 is the, the, the title of the whole chapter. Okay? Pull out your sheet, start looking at this. This will make it uh, hopefully easy to you. You see verses on the first part of the sheet, verses 2 through 14. You see it's broken up, Esau in Canaan and Esau in Seir. That's in the text, so you can check that later if you want. But what this, this uh, genealogy does is it actually has uh, the sons who are born to Esau in Canaan and the sons that are born outside of Canaan. And that's important because a big part of this whole text is Esau leaving Jacob and leaving the land. And you can think about that in your own life. Jacob represents Christ in a way here. Because if you want to choose to leave Jesus Christ and leave the church, you are walking away from blessing. That's the point. So what we see here, they've got five sons born to three mothers. Then you've got um, in Seir, how many sons do you have right there that I've, I've listed for you? There are twelve. But, this is the most contorted way to get to 12 that you have ever seen. So first off, you've got Eliphaz's children. Okay? And he's got nine, well, um, to the mother Ada, excuse me. So to the mother Ada, he's got five children, and they're listed there. Then you've got this statement of Amalek. And there's the statement that Amalek is just a concubine. So guess what? Amalek doesn't get included in the children. Similar to Ishmael didn't get included in uh, the children either. He's kicked out of the covenant. But then you've got Ruel's children. And then you've got down at the bottom, you've got Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. And if you understand, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah are also number three, four, and five of the kids in Canaan. You see that? So what we have, this, this twisted, contorted way to come at 12, and I really think it's purposeful, you've got nine grandchildren, not counting their, the, the sons. So two of the sons are just not even included. Only their grandchildren are included. And then, to, in order to make up 12, oh yeah, by the way, we're actually going to count three of the children to get 12. Now, why are they doing this? Why do they care that there's 12 and 12? Because they're trying to establish a comparison between Esau's descendants and Jacob's descendants, the foil between them two. Now, the two families are moving in opposite directions, and there's a motivation for Esau leaving. He wants to be away from Jacob. This is not personal hatred. They had already kind of made up personally. But see, God had determined that Jacob was the one through whom the blessing would come. And if Esau really wanted the eternal blessing, then he should humble himself and seek it by being near to Jacob. Ultimately, this is found out because the covenant head, and Jacob's the covenant head here, even though Esau should have been, 
Jacob's the covenant head. This is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And the Jews would have trouble with this because they believed they were the, the rightful heirs of the covenant. And Jesus says, no, you've got to be connected to me. I am the rightful head. And in their pride, they wouldn't submit themselves. Esau very much parallels the nation of Israel in this. Jesus is the head. And there's kind of an anachronism even going on here because Esau moved to Seir even before Jacob returned. But in this passage, it's very clear that he's in the land and he's leaving to get away from Jacob. And he's also leaving because it seems like the land is overcrowded. Now, where have you heard this before in Genesis? Right? And I'm just always baffled by this because the land is supposed to be this glorious land that can support millions of people. And now you've got two families of like, you know, 30 people apiece and they can't live together? You know, um, but that's a, that's a problem that's always going on. That's his motivation. I need more. don't have enough. So there we have this establishment of the comparison of these two nations. In verses 15 to 19, we start seeing chiefs exist, heads of clans. So what's happening here is that Esau, we're told of Esau's nationhood divided in the clans, it's actually more advanced than Israel. Israel won't be moved into clans until much later. Right now, Esau is ahead of Israel. Flip the page over. The next thing they have is this list of Horites. And you're like, who cares about the Horites? Who are they? I don't even know who they are. But they are the people who were living in this particular piece of land, which is on the southwestern tip of the, of the Dead Sea. And he basically says, uh, he gives this list of the, who these Horites are. Now, Edomites in some ways will intermarry with the Horites. So we're going to actually see where some of their names actually mix later on. I won't bring that up too much, but... But they will also conquer the Horites. And this is very important to this whole thing. Turn over to Deuteronomy 2, verse 12. Deuteronomy 2, verse 12. I promise you, we're getting close here. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them, and settled them in their place, as Israel to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. So here's the thing, guys. These Horites were living in the land. The Edomites come in, they somewhat marry with them, they don't really care too much about, you know, uh, keeping a pure uh, religion. They, you know, they don't have God as their God. But they do want to rule and conquer. And so they eventually conquer the Horites. So the reason why the Horites are placed there is because the Edomites go into their land and take it over. And it's their land of possession. It's very much parallel to the Israelites going into the land of Canaan, rooting out the Canaanites to take their land of possession. So there's two lands. And we are to see in this that God actually makes it possible. He takes this, this apostate people and he gives them a land. And where does he give them this land? As close to Israel as he can without being in Israel. 
Why does he want this? Because he wants them to be right close by so the Israelites can go, oh, how's God treating those guys? How's it working out for them? And how's he working out for us? The comparison. Next, in verses uh, 31 through 39, he has the succession of Edomite kings. And all we're told in this is that it is way before Israel had kings. Again, it looks on the surface in the temporary that God is being more gracious to the Edomites than he is to Israel. Because they have kings first. But why does God hold Israel back from having kings? Because God says, I want to be your king. But they don't care about that. They raise up kings first. So here's a people who are being apostate. They're doing what they want to do. It looks like things are going good for them. And God's even given them a land to live in. And again, uh, the final verses, 40 through 43, actually have more chiefs. Uh, I won't get into all that. God is himself establishing a comparison. He wants to say, you know what? You want to know how much I love you? You look at the way I treat you as the way that I treat them. So that tells you a couple things, right? It tells you that having power in this world, being advanced in this world, not really signs of God's love, are they? What are signs of God's love? Things like being given God's law, being brought into connection with God, having your sins forgiven, having God's presence with you, that's the essence of being loved by God. And he does all this with Israel through many years. Chastises them because of their sin, draws them back again. That's love. Not just let them do what they want. Turn to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. In Isaiah 34, God is telling to um, his people who have been in exile, he's judged his people, and he's telling uh, his people, oh, but you wait, I'm going to judge the nations. Now listen to this. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. That's the capital city of Edom. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. See there, the you know, vengeance against Edom, the cause of Zion, his people. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever." 
From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. You want to know that he has loved you? Compare what will happen to those whom he has not poured out his love upon. You cannot understand God's love for you unless you do it in comparison for those he has not poured out his love upon. How well do you know the love of God towards you? If you are here today and you are in Christ and God speaks over to you things like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, do you realize what that means? I know that as God's people you still are taken through suffering. I know that this life is hard. I know that you're struggling through all sorts of trials and tribulations. And you wonder why God hasn't made it easier right here and now. But I'm telling you, he is loving you. And you have a sure destiny. Romans 8.35 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Think about that. Who can separate you from that? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or inward struggle or bad thoughts or all the trials that I'm having and the struggles against sin, shall any of that actually separate me from Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope this sermon raises all kinds of questions. I, I, as I'm writing, I'm thinking, well, there's a rabbit trail I want to go down. There's another rabbit trail. What does this mean here? And how does this affect here? If you will just take away the fact that God loves his people differently than he loves those who are not his people, you'll be on the right track. He loves you so much. And you should should read the Bible, every page, even pages like Genesis 36 with a bunch of names that you don't even care to remember. You should read it knowing that God is, every page of this is useful for your growth and understanding of how much he loves you. Amen.